Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Whit Stillman, writer and director of the wonderful films Metropolitan, Barcelona, The Last Days of Disco, and Damsels in Distress. His most recent movie, Love and Friendship, reunites him with his disco stars Kate Beckinsale and Chloe Sevigny for a bouncy adaptation of an early Jane Austen text— And he is just the best guy, because he insisted on making himself available to record this episode, like, two hours after getting off a transatlantic flight, even though I was totally willing to reschedule for another day. Wick couldn't pick just one film, so for this special holiday episode, he decided to program a double bill of two favorites from RKO Studios, The Gay Divorcee, Mark Sandrich's seminal 1934 Astaire Rogers musical, and Wagon Master, John Ford's 1950 western starring Ben Johnson and Harry Carey Jr. as cowboys hired to escort a Mormon wagon train safely to Utah. But we ended up ranging a little further than that, including dips into Witt's own filmography, and I am entirely fine with this. Jet-lagged or not, it was an absolute delight to sit down with him in a New York apartment on the Upper East Side. It was basically perfect, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it too. These are someone else's movies. I've just gotten off the plane from Europe, and I'm jet-lagged, and I got the... I did the mistake of doing homework. (laughs) So I downloaded it um, before you came and started watching it. And... um, it's a film I've put in a lot of sort of best lists, and uh, I love it, but there's a lot of funky stuff at the start, I have to say. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I think we're too hard on films that have the funky stuff, because sometimes it's sort of good to set up something else. So, um, The Get Divorce starts beautifully, the credits I adore, and I think I just see now that I've copied some things in those credits. <laughs> and... Um, then there's this incredibly lame opening um, opening thing, but it really sets off this beautiful Fedester moment that comes right after. So he takes this lame setup with the um, these girls, their fingers dancing. It's sort of this joke that runs through um, <clears throat> and does a wonderful dance number. And so it seems to me, I didn't get that far uh, before you came, but um, it gets down to, I hope this is not a spoiler, it gets yes. to the seashore. And I think when it gets to the seashore is when it really starts taking off. And um, so The Gate of Orsay <clears throat> is one of the RKO um, musicals, the wonderful group of people who are making um, movies there, Pandora Berman and Hermes Pan. <clears throat> and I think there's a really good... Uh, and, and, um, and, and the director, Mark Sandridge. And I think two of my favorite um, films... The two of my favorite films and two of my favorite Rogers and Astaire films are Gate of Orsay and Top Hat. <clears throat> and Top Hat is like, okay, we were successful with Gate of Orsay. Um, movie technology is advancing. We've made a lot of money in this other film. Let's make a really expensive version, the perfected version. And my idea was always that <clears throat> Top Hat is absolutely wonderful. It's, it's just magnificent. But there's something more touching and adorable and intriguing about Gate of Orsay. It comes really early in the history of the great musicals. Um, it was a musical that Fred Astaire had done on stage in the States on Broadway and in the West End in London. And so it's sort of appropriate that a lot of it's in, in, in England. 
and you can see a lot of the musical stage of that period coming right into the movie. And I've been dealing with some people who are anti-influence and adaptation. They want cinema to be cinema and all this kind of stuff. But cinema, all cinema, no matter how cinema it pretends to be, is feeding on something else. It's using something else. And in this case, um, it's using um, this stage musical really, really beautifully. And they do all kinds of goofy things that they wouldn't do later on when everything became streamlined. Things that are really adorable. And one of the tactics of the film is not to be shy about using the same music again and again and again, which I have a weakness for. Um, so rather than have ten tunes, four of which are catchy, it decides if we have four catchy tunes, let's just play them all the time. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. You're, now that you mention it, I'd never even thought about it. I just assumed it was a motif within the musical. But yeah, it, it would have even then been groundbreaking to refuse to do an entire score and just sort of... No, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, I'm anti-groundbreaking too. <laughs> um, because I, I think continuity is great and influence from other things and connections. So I think it's the, sort of the opposite of groundbreaking. The ground had not been set yet. So there's it's simply... Before the ground. Before the ground. There, there are no rules to break. They were deciding what to do okay. on the spot. So you get some of the same sort of charm and delightfulness in the Marx Brothers Coconuts and Duck Soup, the very early things that they're, um, they're bringing over from their very funny stage, stage yeah. things. And then when you get to the big successes, the Irving Thalberg Marx Brothers, they really lose a lot of that yeah. very funny stuff. It's, it becomes something else. Now that you mention it, you know, like it's one of those things where I look at it and I think of it as anarchy, but it, it isn't, is it? It's just them doing their thing. Yeah. And then a story structure gets They're, imposed. They are doing their anarchy. Yeah. Anarchic thing. But it stands out in, yeah, it stands out in comparison to their later work because it, it's, there's not as much invention going on. They're not allowed to. So... I mean, the, the, that was, I mean... I, I had to write something about the adaptation of um, of Love and Friendship, and I couldn't get that much into it. Um, but I was thinking that when I read the Jane Austen original um, title, Lady Susan, um, one thing I loved about it was there's so much Oscar Wilde in it. And I was remembering that <clears throat> the first things I was reading like all the time were Oscar Wilde plays and this book titled Why a Duck. Do you remember that book? I, it's about the Marx Brothers scripts. Yeah. And it talks about how they developed uh, their material. They would go on the road. And, and so, so I think first they were on the road and then they made the films. And then when they were making films, um, they went back on the road to test the material before they shot the film. Yeah, which is so unimaginable now. Yeah, yeah. And it's such a cool thing. And they'd really see what, what jokes worked, what gags worked. And so um, I thought that I was just reading briefly in the authoritative, authoritative Wikipedia about the film now, and I thought that it was that RKO had these wonderful contract players and they're putting them into the Gate of Orsay. But no, they were brought into RKO through the musical. So the musical was performed by. Uh, um, by those wonderful character actors. I'm trying to think of the names. Well, um, uh, like Edward Everett Horton, people like that? Um, Eric Bloor 
and I'm not sure the exact names, I'll have to refer to Wikipedia, but several of the character actors who are so delightful were in both the Broadway and the West End productions, and they came into RKO that way and stayed at RKO, and that's one of the things that made RKO musical so great and made later Top Hat so great. <clears throat> and um, the um, uh, Fred Astaire is at his most charming. He's younger than we than he was. Yeah. We got used to. Quite shockingly. Um, he was, um, you know, a tormented perfectionist. His, um, he, he wanted um, his star from the stage version, Claire Luce, not Claire Booth Luce, Luce right. the actress Claire Luce, um, an American actress who was particularly active in, in Britain. Um, and he thought she's a wonderful dancer. And... Um, he wanted her instead of Ginger Rogers. He didn't want to be in another dancing team because he'd just gotten out of the dancing team with his sister Adele, and he didn't want that again. And then they said, no, no, this is really working well, really, and he changed his tune, so he okay with this. So he did it with uh, Ginger Rogers. And also, um, Claire Luce had injured herself in one of the dances and, um, and really couldn't dance after that, so that took her off the table. It was the table dance song. Number, but he said that his interpretation of Night and Day really comes from Claire Luce. She had a magical version of it that he he felt he was using. And I mean, that's one of the things you know that can make a film great to have Cole Porter's Night and Day in it. Yeah, and, and this song score was actually created for the film, right? Because the original I, I was reading the same Wikipedia page you were actually just to probably just to make sure I was caught up. The original stage play had a largely different song score, but. According to the song list of the stage play, um, Night and Day was in it. Right. It was one, I think it was either that or I think two Day. songs that were carried I think over. Night and Day was the anchor. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> one of the things they, and there's several songs they, they added that were, were good, but um, I mean, the, the marvelous addition is the Continental. Mm-hmm. Dance Craze inspired um, the Sambola, yes. inspired our Dance Craze. I mean, it just seemed to me, you know, watching the movie for the first couple of times, that to have a dance craze like the Continental must be the most wonderful thing in the world. And it's fictional, it's, it's in Fred Astaire movies, it's not maybe in real life. But that's a 17, over 17 minute scene, and um, it doesn't get boring. It doesn't get boring at all. You just want to keep, keep on going. So this is pure musical, and um, in, in parts, in parts, of course, it comes back to the character comedy that's sort of door often farce that's going often on. very very lame but um, but you know wonderful personalities very American despite its uh, British setting yeah it is the I was trying the thing I do with, with selections for the podcast is when people bring them up I try to figure out what it would have how it would have played originally and again you know it's, it looks it seems revolutionary now, as you say, because there were no there were no rules. There's nothing to revolt against. You were simply doing the thing you wanted to do, and later it became a genre. Well, we're going to quibble over terms because I really hate the word revolution, and mm-hmm. um, I don't think it's revolutionary. Um, well, no, no, it wouldn't. It was this beautiful, um, yeah, this beautiful evolutionary thing. Um, this this taking a beautiful thing from one medium and making it beautiful in another medium. Mm-hmm. And it presented uh, a version of England to American audiences that 
perhaps they wouldn't have seen. You know, like it's, it's the sort of drawing. Yeah, I'm really kind of curious at how they got some of the wonderful um, effects. One of the things I like about it, because um, I was watching some movies on the plane, as one does, sure. and um, people do really beautiful work, um, and they spend a huge amount of money, you know, making big things look beautiful. But it seems to me that the economies of scale in this and how they just sort of choose their fights we're just we're just doing a montage of the ocean voyage just some shots and we're just show this on a, on a London street and and it's just great it's just great and I really think that in our luxury of making everything studio quality movie you know beautiful production values um, there we're getting away from what gives the film energy and interest and letting the audience fill in the blanks a little bit and um, it's not just on a cheapskate but that too yeah well you were telling I mean when we spoke about love and friendship uh, in the spring you were saying that it was it, how did you put it it wasn't uh, it wasn't an especially luxurious shoot but you got everything you needed yeah and if you turned the camera two inches in the other direction you would have seen Gripper tape, gaffer tape, everything. The, the, the illusion is maintained yeah. only so far as the frame. Yeah. I have to say that was true of most of my other movies more so because in the case of Love and Friendship, um, we really did have some incredible locations that you could go in and out of and they worked every which way. Um, <clears throat> in Metropolitan, that is definitely the thing where we're just showing one thing because <clears throat> we were cheating two townhouses to pretending that they were apartment buildings, oh, okay. luxurious um, apartments, and we had no elevators really. I think we had one elevator, um, and we had everyone piling into closets, and, and just adding some sound or something, um, and that was fun. So, and there were a lot of locations in Metropolitan where you really couldn't go through the door. Don't go through the door. Right. I think the best um, <clears throat> example of that was the first Neil the uh, Butte film. Was it called in the company of men? Company men yeah. They did so many clever, low-budget things there. Just shoot it in, in a supposed office, but just put up cons- construction tape as if it's under construction, yeah. and uh, do the walk talks from behind. Um, just follow them. <clears throat> that was really good. Um, I love the the, pe- the way people cheat. Yeah, yeah. The um, well, the world of, of the Gate of Orsay is much more splendid. I think they're trying to sell this sort of image of lushes and swells. I mean, I would say, since I always think of it in the context of Top Hat, I'd say, well, Top Hat's what's doing that. This is much more modest in what it's trying to do. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it's still maybe just because it's two years earlier or how many, yeah. however much time earlier. I always get a, I mean... I, it's not there's that a strange, luscious. There's an exotic feel it's to it's it, exotic. I suppose. Maybe it's that's what exotic, it is. Yeah. It's more of a, a linguistic yeah. uh, style. Yeah, well, in this rewatch, I haven't gotten to the really wonderful parts with the big dancing. But... And also, Mr. Tonetti, um, the, the gigolo, oh, who, right. uh, you know, the, the co-respondent or whatever he is, the, the divorce specialist. Yes, the basically the, the man you hire to fake yeah. an affair yeah. when you need that sort of thing. It's so great. It's a different... I mean, it really is. It's only... It's less than a century old, but it feels like it's from a completely different era of, of, of social mores. And, and I mean, everything about every, every single farce is based on two misunderstandings that could be cleared up very easily if people would only talk to each other. But, but what this one does is simply show you the impossibility of talking 
no one will talk. It's all. Well, I'm afraid. Um, I'm, I'm afraid that I don't feel it's that far away. Um, mm-hmm. Cause maybe it's because I grew up with these movies. So to me, this seems normal and everything else seems a little strange. So, um, I, I'm still living in this world. Uh, so I really, you know, I want to live in RKO musicals. I don't want to... But you're doing it by choice. Like, yeah. You, yeah. Trying to. There's something really noble about that, I well, think. And we're out in... I'm, I was just outside in Donald Trump's America, and I prefer the RKO yeah. musical world. Well, he, he, I, I, he actually could... Uh, he actually probably would be much better in the context of a musical. Yeah. Daddy Warbucks or something. Yeah, the boorish villain. Daddy Warbucks is enemy. Ugh. That's true. The other industrialist, the one. <laughs> Daddy Warbucks, at least. It's that. It's the Simpsons joke about, you know, Schindler and I both made shells, but mine worked. Uh, okay. I don't know what a better use of him that would be. Um, I never went back to... I mean, have they put up the clips from uh, from Simpsons? I've seen the still images. They're bouncing around on the net. Yeah, yeah they're funny. They're, those be. guys, I mean, there's so many funny ideas they generated. Yeah, six... Hundred episodes, I think it is now. They just they're running all of them right now on either FX or FXX uh, for Thanksgiving weekend, and there are, there are episodes I haven't thought about in twenty years, and there are episodes I've never seen. Which you, I mean, you me. could you know you could develop a whole movie or a whole screenplay out of you know one of their little jokes. Yeah, well, they've said I think Al Jean said it that all of Citizen Kane has made it into the film, into the series. If you, if you put all the references together, you could pretty much fake Citizen Kane with Simpsons characters. But yeah, it, but could Citizen Kane come out of it? No, no. It would be something stranger, weirder. But yeah, I think so. There's, there are episodes that are as iconic as anything that you could spin into a feature film or, or a novel. I think you're so, right. So one reason we're talking about The Gate of Orsay is... Um, because I mentioned two films. I mentioned The Wagon Master by John Ford, also an RKO film. And you mentioned that you were more up-to-date on Gate of Orsay. Yeah, I haven't seen it. And so now that I was a little disillusioned with the beginning of Gate of Orsay, I want to talk a little bit about Wagon Master. Please. <clears throat> so they sort of share um, this quality of the artists running the asylum, um, that these people are just doing... Um, you know, what what they want to do without a sort of imposed studio formula. Um, in the case of um, the John Ford film, I believe that was made in the early 50s or late 40s, um, and it was when he had gone off with Marion Cooper, kind of very interesting character, um, to form their own company and to shoot films independently. And RKO had them in distribution. And it, it's another film that has one of the funkiest... Another favorite film that has one of the funkiest scenes in it, which is the first scene of, um, of Wagon Master. I'm not sure if they sort of tacked it on to give it a context or to, to sort of have a, give it a fast start of some kind, but it just seems completely out of context the rest of the film. And um, this is a film that we were under the sway of when we were editing... Um, our second film, Barcelona. So in the editing room, we actually would play the theme music from the beginning of Wagon Master. And I think I sort of indirectly grew up in the film because when I was a kid, one of the big shows that I'd watch was addicted to was called Wagon Train. And Wagon Train, I think, was derived from Wagon Master. John Ford, um, Ward Bond was in it. 
Uh, John Ford directed a couple of episodes. He was, you know, friendly to the production. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> there's so many interesting things aesthetically in um, Wagon Master. One is that it's where you almost see best um, Ford's use of diagonals and composition and 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 in making his films. It goes from these beautiful diagonal images to f- from one to another. And <clears throat> It also has the charm of lack of star wattage, so it's not being dominated by huge stars. Right. It has, you know, wonderful secondary stars, secondary players, um, and um, the he sort of gets all his themes in. He gets sort of an admirable religion in. He gets villainous characters who don't they, they seem really bad the Walter Brennan's family but they don't seem that sort of prefab Hollywood bad it really seems like sincerely bad <laughs> fairly socially psychotic right. individuals there's something really really you don't have to worry about this being a cookie cutter bad guy no this is bad. And then um, there's so many just charming elements and, and performances, and it meanders a little bit. I mean, it's a wagon train where they have problems going, getting going, and keeping going. That's really all I remember of it. I mean, it's been <clears throat> decades since I've seen it. Yeah. and um, But I remember the displacement, the sense that it's not, it's episodic by design, that it isn't simply a road movie. Yeah, but it, and again, the, you know, great use of music and great vistas and great great action. I mean, I think except for that opening shot, everything is, is perfect as far as I remember. But now I've been humbled by rewatching the beginning of Gate of and having some strange stuff in there that I hadn't remembered. But I think, I mean, very often I come back to RKO as being the, sort of the great studios the one without the resources, but with more imagination. And um, in, the, in terms of musicals, um, it's RKO and Warner who, who, that, that seem to have made the great musicals of, of the 30s to me. And I think the musicals of the 30s were the great ones. Um, I'm really surprised to see critics' polls where they put um, Singing in the Rain as like the greatest musical. And Singing in the Rain has the greatest musical number. That is sensational mm-hmm. musical sequence. I mean, that's tops. But the whole movie, um, and maybe I'm just being harder on Seeing the Rain because I've seen it many more times than these other films I have in the golden glow, uh, halo of memory. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the black and white um, musicals were much stronger. I, if, in pu- book publishing, one of the first things I worked on was a book on the MGM musicals. Of, of the 50s, the Arthur Freed unit. Right. They tried to call it the That's Entertainment movies were coming out then. They tried to call the book That's Entertainment, but MGM objected. We had to change it. Hmm. I think we called it The World of Entertainment. A guy named Hugh Forden did it. And we had um, Ann Miller coming by the publishing offices at Doubleday, and uh, it was a really fun um, book to work on. But, and I, I like um, films like um, It's Always Fair Weather and Sid Charisse is great in them, and you know, the great things in them, but um, I just don't think you could, if you really knew and loved all, you know, m- 
close to the notable um, musicals you'd say Singing in the Rain would yeah. be would be it. I mean, on the Warner side, um, I know this is not your, your format, but I, no, I can't please, be restrained. <laughs> um, I mean, I think 42nd Street and um, The Gold Diggers of 1933 and 1935 are just sensational. I want to do The Gold Diggers of 2017, wow. but I'm not sure if they'll let me. Someone must. Because one of the great things about those, again, is this, that the the scene, dancing, just keeps on keeping on, and they're not breaking things down for the sappy drama stuff very much. Mm-hmm. It's really, um, it's going full-bore musical. Yeah, well, they're more like reviews than drama. Well, the, those, the Gold Diggers are definitely reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, 42nd Street just is a tour de force of creation. Yeah. I was thinking about... And the drama part is good, too. That's true. 42nd Street is actually... Really good drama. Works on both that, that actor who's carrying the, the dramatic line, the, the producer or director or whatever, whoever he is. I'm sorry, I'm spacing all, no, all the names. No, it's fine. You, you, you're everyone can refer... I refer everyone to Wikipedia. Yes. I recently made a contribution, so now I feel I can quote them <laughs> ad nauseum. It's good. I think the reason people favor Singing in the Rain... I, well, not I think. I wonder if the reason people favor Singing in the Rain is because it's a movie about movie making. Yeah. And inevitably we respond but to that. But that's so easy. It is, but that's why it works. Like yeah. that's, it's, you don't have to force yourself into another mindset. It's like you get the joke about the microphone position. And you yeah. get the joke about I mean, that's that. really... That's interesting stuff, but it's not great cinema. I mean, mm. It's interesting. Yeah. My, for, for me, I think I would prefer the bandwagon over Singing in the Rain myself just because... It is so odd. The, the Can't some, biggest air musical ends with the girl hunt, I think, unless that's singing in the rain. I'm always mixing into it, but it also has a 20 minute production number at the end, uh, jazz ballet, if I remember correctly, and it is just amazing, beautiful to look at. I have a very positive memory of um, of Funny Face too, because there, um, of course, Stanley Donen, we tip our hat to him. Sure, um, and having Astaire and Audrey Hepburn and Paris and who's the wonderful woman who did Eloise at the Plaza and plays the the Vogue editor oh no um, Pink Think Pink she's the big Think Pink number I think her name is Thompson um, she's a, definitely a big double threat with both Eloise and, and her uh, musical's career Think Pink is such a great number yeah. and uh it, it captures so many things. I mean, it's the kind of film that if you know the place well, it's dealing with in the Hollywood sense, you don't mind, you know, what it's doing with it. So the sort of funny face version of Paris is kind of great. Yeah. And there was a point in the 50s where everyone was, they were trying to counter television. They were trying to push harder in the entertainment, just give you the sense that you had to go see this on the big screen and with a crowd. It's the... Uh, one of the episodes we've just done was uh, with Douglas Trumbull about how the West was won and Cinerama and the experience of that gargantuan, uh, overwhelming immersion, which of course led to his own fascination with high frame rate stuff and all the video effects he's doing, 120 frames. Uh, the Billy Lynn's long halftime walk was shot in, uh, Ang Lee just shot it in this process where supposedly, I've only seen it in standard pre- presentation, but in 120 uh, 4K 3D you feel as though you're in the room with them wow. and I don't know that you'd want to yeah uh, because suddenly you know it would, it would work I would, that, I would want to see a play presented that way you know to, to to experience it as though I was above the stage I suppose from the from the from the angle of the seating but the idea that you know all of a sudden a close-up will will be as though you were 
in a room with a giant head. I'm not sure that works the way people think it does, where filmmakers want it to. Yes, I, I think there have been some misfortunes with that. On the other hand, I tend to be really pro some technology. So one of the big um, fights I think filmmakers um, should make if they're doing a lower-budget film is to try to shoot um, in, in the raw, have raw format available. Um, it gives them a huge amount of information in the image and then in the editing room if you find you need to change things you have the room to do it you can reframe you can kind of create cuts and shots and you can do push-ins and all kinds of fascinating things and yes you have to the right camera and the right lighting so it has a good film look you know the ARRI camera raw I think is really really great um, I've had two experiences with sort of the very advanced digital raw um, damsels you know I've had three now because Cosmopolitan's two and I've really been happy with it. And when I hear young filmmakers saying, well, I'm, I'm going to shoot this on film, and you know, they're proud of doing that. And boy, I think, wow, what a nightmare working on film was. I mean, there's just so many problems. So many things didn't, you didn't achieve what you were, you were trying for. Yes, the really beautiful things, for instance, I had an interesting experience with Damsels where we showed it at Cine Family in Los Angeles, this great theater where they really care about movies mm -hmm. um, and they don't have a DCP projector so they have to have the 35 print and in the case of Damsels we still did a film out and, and film prints so it's combined released in DCP and technical release prints and the two show prints they made for premieres and things like that um, looked really good the release prints looked so awful just awful unimaginable and so I was really happy when a theater had the DCP and not the release print. But in the case of Cinefamily, um, Sony gave them one of the show prints. And um, the projectionist was a woman from, who's also a projectionist at the Arclight. Mm -hmm. And she said that she just thought the, um, the film out was exquisitely beautiful. But that's a case where we do the color timing and all that work and all that thinking for the digital and then when we're turning into film, we get another chance with another colorist to th reconsider things. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm not sure, like, is it more time and more eyes working on it that's making it better? Or is it really that film has the quality that you love so much? I don't know. Yeah, I think there's a definitely there's a level of fetishizing that's gone on with the generation of new film students who move seen scratchy 35 millimeter prints and, and decided that that's how they want their movie to look. But I mean, I think another thing is that when digital came in, it really looked horrible. Yeah, the first few years. It really looked horrible, and it looked horrible for a long time, and it can look horrible very easily. Um, I, I remember when we were doing sound for Metropolitan, in those days, they would have black and white, I think it's called reversal stock, for the sound edit, so it's the cheapest film right. possible, because you're running it through the projectors again and again, while you do the sound mix. And it was just so seductive seeing Metropolitan in this crazy black and white. You say, whoa, this is great. You know, but our idea with Metropolitan was to have sort of a black and white film just because of the subject matter, because mm -hmm. people were dressed that way, and it's at night, and um, you know, sort of cream-colored walls maybe, but really. But um, I sort of love the fact that it, it's a combination of black and white and color. So 
You get the re- the, um, the 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 reds and greens from Christmas time, the sort of gold and cream from fancy Park Avenue apartments, although they're townhouses. <laughs> and um, this apartment we're in sort of inspired Metropolitan Way because uh, I grew up upstairs. Okay. And um, my mother sold that apartment at the absolute bottom of the market, got nothing for it, and my sister and her husband. Um, bought it for like 10 times as much, you know, 10 years later. Um, but it's the apartment below it, but exactly the same. My sister recreated it. And so this is the kind of apartment I was in when I was going to the, uh, to the parties. It's a, it's a really lovely space for... It was my version of the West Side. Well, you build it your... Yeah, you build what you need, right? Yeah. I'm remembering Metropolitan in black and white as you're telling me this. It's, it's, yeah. I'm, I'm just sort of doing that for you. Yeah. yeah, as well you might. Yeah. yeah. So the classical nature of your storytelling, which is simply formalism, which is just serving the story by not getting in the way of it, does that, would you say that's a product of your upbringing with older films? Yes. Or is it, yes, it is. Yeah. I mean, I think it's 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 the editing focus nature of our filmmaking and it is growing up with these films and I really so I see the beautiful jobs people are doing and I admire what they do I, I wouldn't have the patience for it or really the interest in it um, because it's this very lengthy you know beautiful slow camera moves showing all these things and everything choreographed and all this and I just think there's so much energy in cutting and I you know occasionally our films get um, knocked things like oh it's the same old boring what is it shot reverse shot or or it's the same old boring blah 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 but I think shooting in such a way that you're going to be cutting is the opposite of boring cutting is where speed and velocity and interest comes into filmmaking it's what makes it great Mm -hmm. and um, so um, the idea of shooting things in a way that you can't really cut in the same way or the cutting has I don't know, the sort of advertising craziness. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, each person, you know, sort of has to have their own style. Yeah. Certainly there's something to be said for knowing what a person is in space in a scene and watching the reactions of people as they speak. And, and your films are so often about the character's behavior rather than what they're saying is how they're responding and what's going on so that you would want to focus on that? I, I do. I mean, having seen a dozen movies in the last two years that mistake uh, obscuring action for action, for, for clarity, you know, like the, the idea of a handheld camera racing through space rather than showing you who's in the room and understanding why things are happening the way they are, it's it kind of exhausting. Uh, there's something to be said for the Bourne movies that... Uh... Well, I think there's an interplay between um, giving the audience enough information so they can look at different things and have different ideas and, and you know, that they have a sort of a wide view of different interesting things. And then at certain points, sort of focusing on, on just sort of one thing and the back and forth. And um, one thing we found, um, and the editor, Chris Tolson of, of Metropolitan, noticed this in the first screening of um, Metropolitan that all the laughs were on their reaction shots. No laughs are on dialogue. Laughs are on reaction. Interesting. And, um, I mean, again, um, our means were so limited. We had so little money. Um, We had one 
screening um, in, in a theater before we locked picture. And it was slightly hurt by the fact that in Super um, 16 film stock, it's easy to make some big mistakes. So the assistant editor had cut a taxi um, ride in upside down mm. that did take people out of the film for a while. But <laughs> we recovered from that and went okay. And then we really had only been able to, you know, finish the film and show it once before we went into the market to try to sell it. And um, so it, um, you know, that first screening was a learning experience. I can Fortunately, it was a happy one in that case. Yeah. So um, to, to, before we wrap up, yeah. um, I guess the way I'm trying to frame this is if this is, if you are programming a double bill of, of Wagon Master and the Gate of Orsay, is there an order you want to suggest people watch them in if they're going back to revisit them now that they've heard this? Yeah, I would go in a chronological order. Okay. I would go with the 1934 film first. And um, I mean, I think one of the like, example of the brilliant things in um, Gate of Orsay is the first title card they use in the front credits really has all the information you need to know about the film. Like, everyone's name is there. <laughs> and I'm just so sick of this thing now where it just rolls out one name after another, one name after another. And there's all this sort of fake action to run while these names... And it's just, you know, agents negotiating single-card credits and, you know, yeah. a film shouldn't be showing negotiated credits, you know. And the, the other thing that's happening now is putting the credits at the end that I don't like at all. Yeah. I really think it's great having a time when the credits are rolling, you can straggle in with your popcorn, you've only missed the credits, and, uh, and then the movie starts. Yeah, I had just rewatched Magnificent Seven, the 1960 version, and it doesn't, it just is the end. I was stunned. And of course, that's how it used to be. Uh, They're all top heavy, and there's nothing at the end other than the end. Are you sure that's exactly how it was? Or or are you sure that isn't the version they they did for TV? Oh, no, no, no. no. It was the Blu ray, it's the theatrical cut. Uh, The Magnificent Seven also surprises me by not being a giant roadshow movie. I always remember it being longer than it is. It's only 128 minutes. But who put out this this DVD? MGM. It's theirs. Mm. I'm pretty sure. I wouldn't trust them at all. Really? Even now? I wouldn't trust them at all. I would think contractually you'd have to to show the film now. You'd have to show it as it was, or else you'd have that little, this movie has been edited in condensed notice. No, I don't think so. Um, I don't believe so if... um, if there were, you know, back then, several different versions. Oh, possibly. I mean... I don't know. I don't know. Now I have to investigate it. But uh, I will. I'll I'll let you know. Anyway, I hope the second, the last two-thirds of Gate of Orsay um, confirms my enthusiasm. I remember it fondly. The first third did seem to chug along a little awkwardly. Really? But if you've seen it so many times, then now you'll just... I mean, one of the strange things in my generation is that we grew up with movies on TV, so often we'd catch films that had already been playing for, for, for... We'd miss the first third of a film. Right. And we'd decide we'd love a film based on the two-thirds, not knowing really what happened at the start. Mm-hmm. And now we get to see them from the very beginning, which is great, because you, th- you think, oh, I've seen that film. And it turns out, no, I actually haven't seen that film. I've seen part of that film. and um, But it can make some films really seem absolutely 100% brilliant if you 
skip the awkward storytelling right. at the start. <laughs> you only come in with the happy part. <laughs> I remember a premiere of um, Robert Renner's A Few Good Men, mm-hmm. and it's 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 very hard for a lot of people to really enjoy a film in a premiere. It's so the introductions and it's so forced and anyway. And so afterwards, people were a little quiet about the film, who had seen the whole film, been there since the beginning. And then um, two women were there who were incredibly enthusiastic about it. And they both had gotten there late, and they missed seeing the murder about which they're talking the rest of the time. I was thinking about that in storytelling. Sometimes it's really better not to show the stuff. Just let the people guess what happened. Yeah. You know? I'm all for it. I I like ambiguity. people make their decisions and don't show them. And we've covered it more or less, but I have to ask the question. It's the closer. Um, is there what, or rather what of the either film has made it into your storytelling DNA? Have you, have you ever referenced directly either film or stolen something from it? Well, I just noticed now that the way we do, um, the cast in Metropolitan is exactly the same way the they do the card. cast. It's the players, and then a diagonal going down with all the players. <laughs> I just assumed that was a traditional thing that you were using. Yeah, I think it's a traditional thing, but I see it. They did it's there. right there. <laughs> and um, um, there must be something in, in Wagon Master we've used. I mean, we try to sort of infuse everything we do. I mean, I, I think we, we try to infuse Barcelona with a lot of the spirit of Wagon Master. It's crazy because what do they have to do with each other? Nothing. But um, another thing I'd like to say is that because George Stevens is, you know, an admired filmmaker, I think when people go back and judge the arcade musicals, they think, oh, the George Stevens, Fred Astaire, and Ginger Rogers. And I always felt that Mark Sandridge, since he wasn't famous, although his son, Jay Sandridge, was very active on TV and mm-hmm. very, very talented, um, he got the short end of the stick because I think it's sort of the Mark Sanders musicals are the great ones not the George Stevens ones and George Stevens in the area of comedy maybe not yeah, so not the first thing we associate him with yeah so it's just a question so don't go by the name brand you know go yeah. by the movie just seek out the thing that you love the most yeah I'd like to know more about Mark Sandwich. Did does a beautiful job yeah are there no biographies I mean there must be something for I don't him. think yeah. so he died young oh, very young oh man I didn't even know that. My thanks to Whit Stillman, whose latest movie, Love and Friendship, is available now on Blu-ray and DVD for Mongrel Media in Canada and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment in the U.S. It's also on iTunes and Google Play. Thanks also to Natalie Atkinson. She knows what she did. Also, I did my due diligence on The Magnificent Seven, and there really only is one version. Two hours and eight minutes long, same on Blu-ray and DVD all over the world. So you can pick it up without worrying if you're of a mind to. You can find Wit on Twitter at Wit Stillman, all one word, and you can find The Gay Divorcee and Wagon Master on DVD. They're both available through Warner Home Entertainment. The Gay Divorcee is also available on iTunes and Google Play, and Wagon Master is available on iTunes in the U.S. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you, Uh, don't you be going making any remarks about Salt Lake City. Thanks for listening.